Hi, I'm Dr. Lisa Dunn, and thanks for joining me here today on The Communication Architect. Each week, we'll share content that will empower you to grow your personal leadership capacity through the development of communication competencies that build emotional health and relational resilience. We'll unpack some practical applications of interpersonal, intrapersonal, family, and organizational communication. And we'll connect with stories of transformation that will inspire you to achieve personal and social change. Now, let's build the scaffolding you need to become a communication architect. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the show. I'm Dr. Lisa Dunn, a lifelong homeschooling parent, author, and president of Chula Vista Christian University, a four-year university in San Diego that centers on mentor-driven, Bible-based, debt-free higher education. Visit us at cvcu.us to see how we are taking back education for the next generation. If you're new to the show, be sure to scroll back on my podcast for some tips on breaking free from the toxic traits of traditional education and establishing habits that will reset your family and organizational culture. Pastors, if you'd like to know more about how you can play a vital role in rescuing the outsourced generation, go to academicrescuemission.com and click the Start an Academy tab. We can have your church-based campus running anywhere in the United States in just four weeks. Parents, we have three levels of support for you, church-based support classes, annual conference, and our Socratic mentor-driven debt-free college degree programs. Earn your bachelor's degree in political science, engineering, psychology, pre-med, education, business communication, and more. Get all the details at cvcu.us. Classes start soon, and you can apply at Chula Vista Christian University. That's cvcu.us. Well, here we stand at the cusp of a brand new year, a new season, and that is always a cause for reflection about our past, our present, and our future. And like many of you, I've been looking around at the news and seeing what's happening at the macrocosmic view, the furtherance of the faith, the continuation of Christianity in America, which is under fire from every corner right now. This week at our church, I was talking about the concept of building God's house. And this has been an important core for our family for three decades now. The the three church movements we've been part of over the last 30 years in Gainesville, in Sacramento, in San Diego have helped shape this value in us to teach our children to love, to give, to serve, to honor in the local church. And honestly, when I look around, I'm concerned about the next generation Gen Z's are missing in action in the local church. And when I watch Gen Z's and Alphas from the stage at churches across the United States, I see a lot of commonality. I see vacant gazes. I see silent lips. I see numb hearts. And I am concerned. What does it mean to build God's house? This idea is illustrated a little ironically in the account of the Old Testament prophet, prophet Jonah. So let's take a little look at him. We all know Jonah as the fish guy, right? We marvel at the miracle of Jonah floating in the digestive enzymes of a fish belly for three days. But when we look closely at the posture of his heart, we see some warning signs about Jonah. Jonah's a little calculating and critical and callous. Now, we all know the story. God tells Jonah to go to Nineveh, and Jonah basically crosses his arms, stomps his feet, says no to God, and gets on a boat going in the exact opposite direction to Tarshish. The Bible literally says that he, quote, runs away from the presence of the Lord. Jonah flees in the opposite direction. He knows the truth, but he chooses comfort and convenience over conviction. He's calculating. God strikes Jonah's escape vessel with this terrible storm that causes the sailors to freak out, throw all their gear into the ocean, and then cast lots 
to see why they were being cursed. And the lot falls to Jonah. Lots, by the way, were this ancient method of determining divine will through a process, kind of like throwing stones, like a modern day flipping of a coin. Heads, it's Jonah. And Jonah tells these unbelieving sailors, yes, you're right, throw me into the sea to stop the storm. Of course, they resist out of fear, and then they finally give in. The storm stops. Jonah's swallowed up by a fish. I love this. The Bible says, God appointed a fish to swallow Jonah. And Jonah sits in its belly for three days, and then he's vomited out. That word vomit just like today, has a denotation of disgust. And we can clearly see the double meaning here. Jonah didn't pray for the pagan sailors. Jonah ran away from God. And though he was disciplined for his actions, God also had mercy on him. I mean, the whole fish belly experience is a display of mercy mingled with discipline. And when Jonah finally makes it to the Ninevites, we get a glimpse of his heart yet again, and it is remarkably critical. Jonah preaches the word to the pagan Ninevites that they'd be overthrown in 40 days. But instead of continuing in sin, as Jonah literally hopes they will do, the city repents. Even the king of Nineveh bows his knee to the living God, and God sees their change of heart. He relents. But Jonah doesn't rejoice over their repentance. In fact, the Bible says he is, quote, exceedingly displeased. He's mad. He's disappointed. Jonah's very dramatic in his response to God's plan. He says, just let me die. To which God responds, do you really have a right to be angry here, Jonah? God grows this vine to give Jonah shade and then destroys the vine, which ultimately reveals Jonah's heart posture. Yet again, his heart is in the wrong place. The true colors of his calloused heart are revealed in full when we see that Jonah actually cares more about the plant than the people. His heart is captivated by a lesser God. Jonah has a lot in common with the fictional character Scrooge, which was performed last week in our church by Ethan Dunn. You'd be sure to catch the interview with him by scrolling back on the po- podcast to last week's show. But both Jonah and Scrooge had a reputation as prideful, ill-tempered men whose daily decisions seem to be driven by their past pains. And maybe you, like me, can relate to their predicament. In our church's production, this Christmas Carol production called Twisted, there's this reimagined scene of Ebenezer's childhood where after his mom dies, he's searching through empty kitchen cabinets for food. And I grew up in a home like that, in a home of abandonment and neglect. And that experience colored my worldview with this underlying cynicism that there would never be enough food enough time, enough love. That's what we call a scarcity mentality. A scarcity mentality is an obsession with something, usually time or money, that keeps us fearfully focused on lack instead of provision. It literally reshapes our brains. A neural imaging study published in the journal National Academy of Science showed that a scarcity mentality significantly and negatively impacts our mental outlook. The study compared both a scarcity and an abundance mindset within participants scanning their brains with functional magnetic resonance imaging, fMRIs, to find out which areas of the brain were activated in each scenario. When the brain was in a scarcity mindset, participants in the study had more activity in the orbitofrontal cortex, which is the part of the brain that's associated with valuation processes. And the scarcity mindset decreased activity in the dorsolateral prefrontal cortex, which is the region that's associated with goal-directed choices. This is what the study found. First, 
A scarcity mindset limits your brain function. Scarcity mentalities affect our abilities to solve problems, to hold information, to reason logically. The studies showed that the brain's decision-making process was limited. We couldn't plan as well. We couldn't focus as well. We couldn't start a project or task because our brain is so busy thinking about something we don't have that it can't appreciate what we do have. Does that sound familiar? Second, it makes impulse control harder. The decision-making part of your brain controls your impulses. And the study showed that this tunnel vision reduces brain function and it makes us more likely to give in to impulses that we wouldn't normally give into. When we start spending our energy obsessing over one lack, the other areas of the brain start to last, to atrophy. And third, kind of a funny one, but sobering as well, a scarcity mentality can cause our IQ, our intelligence quotient, our intelligence quotient to decline as much as 14 points. Wow. This is this is science confirming God's infallible word. One of our first pastors used to say, sin makes us stupid. <laughs> Recently, as I was wrestling with this scarcity mindset yet again, I asked God for approval about a trip that I wanted to buy for my family. I was checking my heart. So I thought if it was right to spend the money and God checked me instantly by dropping Proverbs 23 in my head. Proverbs 23 uh, says, do not eat the bread of a stingy man for he's always thinking about the cost. His heart is not with you. In other words, my focus was faulty and God illuminated the, the impact that my scarcity mentality would have on my life if I didn't renew my mind. The Lord chastises those he loves as a father, the son he delights in. And what he was telling me here through this word is that my focus was actually on the temporal instead of the eternal, that investing into my family and our time together had greater dividends than storing up that mammon would have. My focus was actually on the scarcity, on the cost, on the lack, on the plant and not the people. The word of God is both an anchor to our soul and an x-ray for our hearts. Now, the Old Testament prophet Haggai describes scarcity like this. He says, the people sowed much, but reaped little. They ate, but they were not satisfied. They clothed themselves, but they were not warm. They earned wages, but those wages went into a bag of holes. Maybe you can relate. That is lack. And in that first chapter of Haggai, lack is clearly tied to one condition. Listen, the people put their own houses above the house of God. Now, our own houses are very important, of course, but everything we do, everything we love must pale in comparison to our love for the king. Spurgeon says it's one thing to love the ways of the Lord when everything's going well, but it's quite another to cling to God under the weight of discouragement or difficulty. He said that the kiss of outward profession is cheap and easy. And we live in a virtue signaling world where people play by their own rules and then they blame God for the consequences. But God has very specific requirements about our relationships with people, with money, and with him. It's all about the heart because that's where our treasure is. And the heart is a funny thing, C.S. Lewis said, because if we lock it up tight, it won't become protected. It will become unbreakable, impenetrable, hardened. There's a language and a posture that leads to liberty, and there's a language and a posture that leads to bondage. And we've been talking about the story of Jonah, the account of Jonah and his heart and some of the areas that he struggled in that are 
definitely relatable to us. And you know, it's interesting to note that Nineveh was a great city near modern day Iraq, and it was founded by Nimrod, but it had some really interesting similarities. It had a public public parks, it had botanical gardens, a library, it even had a zoo. And it was known as a royal city. And the city that I live in, San Diego, is called America's finest city, true. And uh, I, I like those I like those comparisons because it reminds us that that same call is going forth from Jonah's era to our era to take dominion. And despite Jonah's resistance, despite our own personal shortcomings, God had already written the blueprint into the plan. When we break down the meaning of Jonah's name, it actually means dove. And like Jonah, God calls us to occupy. He calls us to take dominion. He calls us to increase our territory, to build his house. But here's the twist. It's a kingdom of opposites. Dominion in the kingdom starts with surrender. Humility comes before honor. Increase comes to those who give it away. Our treasure, like Jonah's, is demonstrate not just in what we say, but in what we do. Let's talk about that word dominion. When we take dominion, we take it first over ourselves, right? We lead ourselves before we lead others. We uh, take dominion over our, our personal lives, over our habits, over our hearts, over our finances, over our children, our family, because individual self-government is vital for dominion in the culture. Maybe that starts with a small step for you. No, my husband has incredible dominion over his closet. I am not making this up. His clothes are organized by color. If you open his dresser drawers, even his t-shirts are stacked up like little color-coded soldiers from one side of the drawer to the other. It's very impressive. And I have to admit, it is quite a dramatic contrast from my own closet. Maybe you're home is in some way less humorously out of order right now. Maybe your father who has vanquished his rightful role as leader and created a vacuum that somebody else in your house is reluctantly filling. Ouch, I know, but it's true in so many places in our country. Maybe you're a mom who knows that God is calling you to disciple your children, to sever the unequal yoke with an anti-faith, anti-family school system and train your kids up yourself in the truth of God's word. Maybe you've been running from the local church for years, focusing on scarcity, on the personalities instead of the big picture. Listen, I get it. Tozer was concerned that churches didn't preach the consequences of rebellion. And he said that the root of sin is rebellion against God. Hell, he said, is the Alcatraz for the unconstitutional rebels who refuse to surrender to the will of God. How, and he said, hell will be the eternal domain of these disobedient rebels who have said, I owe God nothing. In contrast, the truth is we owe God everything. Wherever it is in your life right now, as you stand at the cusp of a new beginning, I want to encourage you, take dominion, take up the language and posture of liberty, of freedom, reject the language and the posture of bondage, teach your children and your grandchildren to build God's house, to love, to give, to serve in the local church, to grow the kingdom, one life and one family at a time, to shift the culture. 
It means that we learn to walk our kids through hurts and heartaches that are a reality of life in community. It's not um, it's not an experience where we can just close ourselves off from the world and live in, you know, a remote area where we where we won't ever have relationships with other people. The relationships are what sharpen us. They're what shape us. They're what hone the gifts and talents within us. I've talked about this before on the show, but it's one of the reasons I feel like the benchmarking process of the Homeschool Academy model is so powerful because we can get in our own little bubble and feel like, you know, we've got it together. But then when we get around somebody else that has it together better, it really sharpens us. It's like, I can be running along on the trail uh, by our house and feeling like, wow, I am so fast when all of a sudden an Olympic runner from the Olympic Training Center down the street passes by me and I realize I am not so fast. Uh, you know, it's, it's, it's all relative. And so when we're, you know, the Homeschool Academy model gives kids the opportunity to see other people who are better writers or better speakers or better mathematicians or better scientists, and it calls us up. It's such a great sharpening model. And the reason I love the two-day model, which is what I recommend for our academies that we start up across the United States, is because it gives enough time to have that margin of relationship with parents, parent-directed, community-based models. And then those two days, one or two days where kids are sharpened by peers, by godly, like-minded peers that are echoing what parents are saying, not questioning, not undermining, but sharpening and challenging. And that's the same model we built the college on. The university is built on that same two-day system where kids are not stuck in that college bubble where their whole life is college, but they have instead a network outside of that. Our students at CVCU have to serve in their church. They have to serve in their local community. They have to be committed by junior year to an internship where they are part of a bigger system, not just they're a college student and that's all their life. I, I saw that over the 25 years that I taught in the university systems, this college bubble where kids would just get stuck in that and they didn't even want to graduate because they became so comfortable in that college bubble. You know, we have to, we have to push them. We have to put the fire under them. We have to give them the motivation that they need. And being in church can help us do that. It helps us learn to walk through those hurts and heartaches, to be part of a network, to learn the language of community. And we can close off our hearts. We can love plants or pets more than people. But like C.S. Lewis said, our hearts won't become unbreakable. They'll become impenetrable. What about you? What harvest are you seeing in your home right now? What are you sowing in terms of seeds today in your family, in your organization, in the realm of influence that God has given you that you're going to harvest tomorrow? Are you modeling character traits that will help your family shine like stars in a warped and worrisome generation? You know, maybe as we stand at the cusp of the new year, maybe you're feeling a little bit off course right now, like you've hopped a ship to Tarshish when you should have been headed to Nineveh. There's redemption for you, my friend. I hope you find that in the retelling of Jonah's story. Maybe you see a glimpse of yourself in Jonah's attitude, in his calculating, critical, or calloused posture. This is the moment to allow the Word of God to be both that anchor for your soul and that x-ray for your heart. Maybe you find yourself in a storm 
or a season of lack or a stronghold of scarcity like the one that I described. And it it really trauma really is not just the experience itself, but it's our the impact of our 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 experience on our lives, on our past, on our present, our future. I've talked before on the show about um, the studies on healing trauma that if there's someone to moderate the trauma, if there's someone, an adult person, a mentor, this is why mentors matter, why they're so important. But if there's someone there to help moderate and explain and make sense and reframe the narrative, you know, I, I, I look at my comparison of my home growing up where there was no one to moderate that until a mentor stepped in in high school. And I'm very thankful for her. But in my husband's home, his mom was able to moderate a lot of the scarcity and the pain that he experienced. And um, he has a very different mindset as I do, even though we had a lot of similarities in our in our childhood homes. And so, you know, maybe that's where you are right now. Maybe you see a glimpse of yourself in this. Maybe this is that moment where you're going to allow God's word to be an anchor for your soul and an x-ray for your heart. Or maybe you find yourself in a storm. Maybe there's a season of lack for you, like the one I described in the book of Haggai. This is the moment to yield your heart to God and and step out in faith, because as you build his house, he's going to build your house. And I just, for all of us, for the sake of the next generation, I want all of us to work together and help the local church thrive. If you're not committed to a local church, I want to recommend that whatever city you live in, that you start by looking for churches that are alive and active, that are speaking from a biblical perspective and addressing the real culture we live in, because so much of this is a solvable problem if churches would just work together. Our nation's educational and spiritual ecosystem must be radically changed for the sake of the mental, physical, and spiritual health of the next generation. And really for the continuance of the church and the faith, I am calling on churches across the United States to be part of the solution. Pastors, church leaders, you can go to ARM, the Academic Rescue Mission at academicrescuemission.com to arm your congregation against pagan indoctrination. We all know that traditional education is broken beyond repair. And instead of training up joyful, creative, faith-filled scholars, our government education system is churning out atheist armies. This is the most anxious, depressed atheist generation in the history of our nation. Our local answer to the global crisis is Chula Vista Christian University, and you can learn more about our work at cvcu.us. Don't forget to check out my latest book, Outsourced, Why America's Kids Need an Education Revolution. Parents and students, you can join us for debt-free, faith-based support that's not yoked to a woke government system. Learn more at cvcu.us. Again, I'm Dr. Lisa Dunn. Thanks for joining me on today's show. I'll be back next week with more tips and tools of the trade. We'll see you then. Thanks again for joining us here on The Communication Architect. If you have questions about today's episode or if there are topics you'd like to see us address, send your comments via Instagram to at Dr. Lisa Dunn or via email to contact at drlisadunn.com. That's D-R-L-I-S-A-D-U-N-N-E.com. And remember, strategic communication will help you build greater emotional health and relational resilience. So don't miss the next episode. I'm Dr. Lisa Nunn, and I look forward to talking with you next time right here on The Communication Architect.